You are listening to EE Entrepreneurs, where we meet the engineers who turn their passions into business ventures with innovations that benefit people and the planet. Hi, I'm Amy Kalnoskis, editor with EE World Online. When Sujit Banerjee arrived in the United States from India, he came wanting to make a difference, an impact, a transformation in energy processing technology. And if he couldn't, he was going back. He hasn't. His fascination for physics and semiconductors brought him to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York, and it was at RPI where he met two other PhD candidates who were equally passionate and who had similar and eventually complementary skill sets working with wideband gap semiconductors, enough to form a sort of silicon carbide club. Years later, the self-proclaimed non-marketing guy approached a fab with not much more than a dollar in his pocket to invest and a dream of silicon carbide power semiconductor technology to sell. CEO of Round Rock, Texas-based Monolith Semiconductor, a developer of silicon carbide technology, Dr. Banerjee, with 25 patents for his work in power semiconductors, by the way, attracted the attention of the multinational electronic manufacturing company Littlefuse, which acquired a controlling interest in Monolith in 2017. The expansion by Littlefuse from circuit protection products to sensing and now to power semiconductors via monolith should be no great surprise. The move towards silicon carbide for green energy applications, in particular, aligns well with Littlefuse's product lines focused on renewable energy and storage, EV charging, and charging infrastructure. How did Sujit and his PhD pals go from lab to fab to releasing a 1200 volt ultra-low on-resistance SICK MOSFET, and as one of the wideband gap semiconductor frontrunners in the power semi-space, what place does silicon carbide hold in energy efficiency applications now and in the future? Stick around and hear it from the guy who crossed continents to make a difference and is doing it. again for being here and what I'd like to do just to get us started is for you to tell us how you got started. What about where you came from, where your background, the people that you met and where you worked previously helped put you where you are today and then we'll start talking a little bit later about the technology. So let us, let's first get to know you. Sure. So, you know, uh, from my name, it shouldn't be that hard to guess. I'm originally from India and I did my undergrad there. And I have always been fascinated by, since my childhood actually, fascinated by physics and how things work in general. And, and growing, up, growing up in India, it was not so much about really doing experimental things or building things, but just thinking about how things work and how things happen instead of really building stuff. So I have always been fascinated by that. And somehow semiconductors really attracted me when I was doing my engineering. And again, that's what I say. I always joke. It's more about that if I was doing, you know, something else with physics, like building building something, you can do that. With semiconductors, you really cannot build stuff. But what you do more is connect the dots. You try to take different kind of results and trying to draw a conclusion out of that, which is not obvious to you. So when I finished my undergrad in India, actually, I worked for Texas Instruments uh, in India for about one and a half years before I decided to uh, come to U.S., and do my PhD. And I did my PhD in uh, silicon carbide, which was a new material at that time. Honestly, I didn't have any clue when I moved to US. 
is that I'm going to work on silicon carbide or I'm going to work on power semiconductors. I didn't even know about the geography of US and I couldn't differentiate between Washington State and the Washington DC. That's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is not very uncommon for people coming from outside the state. And, uh, you know, I, I, when I moved to here, it was all about the dream of that. Hey, I, you know, it seemed like if you wanted to do semiconductors and if you wanted to advance something more than what I was getting out of doing just simple circuit design in TI in Bangalore at that point, that was 1997 when I moved to US, then it seemed like, you know, but that's one thing that I, you know, I always had dreamt about is that because, you know, I, I'm very close to my family, to my parents, to my sister, and I have a lot of friends in India is that if I move US, move to US, and if I migrate here, I really don't want to, you know, live here and then just be here just for, okay, having a better life and making money. I really wanted to make a difference. That was one part of it. And if I can't do it, I would rather go back to India. Well, that was 20 years back. And then I did my PhD in silicon carbide in RPI. And that was mainly because that's the place uh, I got a graduate scholarship from. So my uh, I, all I had to do is get my passage money, the flight from India to US. And then my uh, tuition, my living expenses, well, which was not much, less than $1,000 at that time. And I got into the fascinating world of silicon carbide and getting into a clean room where you really make products you make start making new devices and you realize that, hey, I'm working on something on the cutting edge. I'm right there leading the technology, which was a fascinating experience compared to when I was in India doing my undergrad where I was doing stuff, which is like, you know, I, you know undergrad, we're still reading about valves and stuff, which was not being used at all there. And doing a PhD, you're suddenly transformed to a totally new world. And that was fascinating. And, and as I learned more and more about silicon carbide and learned more about power semiconductor and power electronics, what I started realizing that, man, I'm working on something that can really transform the way we process energy. I, I, I like to joke that, hey, in some ways, the model semiconductor was formed when we were in, in RPI, like in the lab, you know, Friday afternoons, you have like a bunch of friends putting together. And the dream was, hey, we, we are learning this stuff and one day, we should be able to make this into a real business. Where, because that's the other thing which has, I've always been fascinated by, like, you know, not only about, you know, physics and semiconductors and also about the real life. How do you have an impact with that? And not so much only about, you know, writing papers or being in ac academics. So when I graduated from RPI, essentially at that point, I went to uh, Silicon Valley, San Jose, to a company named Power Integrations. Uh, of course, when I joined Power Integrations, my first thought when I had my interview is very interesting. The you know, uh, as an engineer, I was interviewed by all the way up to the CEO of the company. I had a chance to talk to him, and I remember that I told him that, "Hey, PI, you guys really need to get into this stuff, silicon carbide. It's fascinating." And he kind of explained to me why it was absolutely meaningless. It didn't make any sense to work on silicon carbide, and he talked about. I understood about at power integrations that it's more about making a technology manufacturable and reliable where you can make millions, actually billions of devices and put it on the market at the right price, at the right quality, where people can really use it and you can have an impact on day-to-day -day life. And that's what I think, you know, what I learned at, uh, you know, RPI, of course, my undergrad days from my teachers there, and then at RPI about silicon carbide and what I learned at power integration of how to make 
a technology manufacturable, cost-effective, and reliable. These two things together made us to jump to make silicon carbide and monolith. And so I, I was in uh, power integrations from 2002 till 2012. We started monolith in 2012. And then, you know, then we have been here and then we have got funding from the Fuse, and all that is going so well. So that's sort of my background. I think some of your, your RPI classmates maybe ended up with you at monolith. Is that what you said? Absolutely. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm just thinking, you could imagine those Friday nights and it wasn't even a, in a garage. It was probably in a lab knowing you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I'm, um, so with silicon carbide, the timing seems really good. So what was it about? I mean, the timing seems good because we're, we're talking so much about, you know, renewable energy conversion systems and, you know, the green revolution, but the, you know, efficiency and power density have always been issues. But now uh, silicon carbide as a, as a wide band gap semiconductor seems to be getting a lot of, I mean, you seem to, you seem to be right in the right place to, to, to make these things happen between what the market wants and what technology type of technology is available. So how do you feel like expand upon how the silicon um, carbide devices are, are enabling more energy efficient things like solar inverters or uh, wind power inverters or whatever else would contribute to the, the renewable energy conversion systems? And, and to date, why has it, why have there been to, why have there been like cost or reliability barriers if there were, why didn't it happen yep. sooner? Hey, I like to say that I predicted all that when I joined Silicon Carbide in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's not the case. So essentially, like, you know, Silicon Carbide is something that has been known to, uh, you know, semiconductor people for a long time. It's almost, almost as old as Silicon. And when people started working with Silicon at that same time, there were talks about Silicon Carbide and why it's a better semiconductor and things like that. So, you know, if you look at the green energy and solar inverter, right? I mean, there are studies that have been shown by Department, US Department of Energy and other organizations that as a mankind, what is happening to us is that more and more of the energy is being processed through an electrical energy instead of some other forms like fossil fuels or say light through electric bulb or things like that. Everything is going into electric energy and then getting either transferred or distributed. Example being that the, the, the solar cell that you see, that you're taking thermal energy from, from the sun and you're converting it into electrical form. And then you are either storing it into a battery or you're transferring it to another place. Same thing with uh, uh, an automotive. When it moves, so we, well, we still use uh, gasoline to run an automotive through, you know, mechanical or, you know, IC engine and other, other forms. But it's more and more getting transferred into where you use a battery. So you still need uh, some form to get the energy into the battery, but we are getting more and more into converting the energy into electrical form in a battery and then driving the motor in a car. So basically we are getting into more and more electrical energy. And the reason being that electrical energy is one of the most efficient forms to process it and that's the but what is happening is as we talk about the renewable energy we talked about this green revolution is if you have to process the energy you have, have to process it or you have to transfer it from one form to another like dc to ac or from low voltage to higher voltage or higher voltage to lower voltage different frequencies mm -hmm. you have to do the power conversions multiple times the challenge is every time you do this power conversion you have some loss so you need a very, very efficient way of conversion, converting the energy from one 
electrical one form to another. That's where silicon carbide plays a huge role because in power electronics, every time you switch a device to make it from a DC to AC, or you switch it from a rectify it to make it from AC to DC, those changes there, compared to silicon devices, silicon carbide, which is a new material, it's a lot more efficient. So while with silicon, you could have lost 8% or 10% of the energy every time you do a conversion. With silicon carbide, you can reduce it to just 1% or 2%. So you save a huge amount of energy in these conversions. And that's why silicon carbide is having a big traction, is, is getting really get a lot of pull into this green energy things where you talk about solar energy inverters, you talk about electric vehicle or charging of electric vehicle. Silicon carbide is a big win there. The global silicon carbide market is expected to reach $4.5 billion by 2020, with solar power generation being a significant portion of that market. In order to make it cost-effective, the performance of the photovoltaic inverter, which is one of the main components in a solar energy conversion system, depends on the design of its power electronics. In order to achieve maximum power from the solar panels, you need to minimize the power loss in the energy conversion system, reduce the component count, and select the right semiconductor devices. The high power and high temperature qualities of silicon carbide material fits right in with those requirements. Beyond solar power generation, silicon carbide also has uses in IT, buildings, grid electronics, transportation, and a lot more. Sounds good, right? But of course, there are challenges. So anytime you talk about green energy, any technology where you're thinking about efficiency, silicon carbide becomes very critical. The challenge it has been that with silicon carbide that, you know, it was always known that it can give you better efficiency and it can give you, you know, all the benefits that you can see from silicon carbide performance. The challenge has always been the cost and reliability. And we can get into more details of that as we go further down the conversation. But I'm just curious... What, are, were a lot of companies just waiting for them to be to be more of a market, or did they have some other reticence for you know not think, entering the market? No, I think I, I think these are different different factors playing here. So in terms of the green energy and the green energy revolution and the efficiency and you know all these these are different actually you know commercial factors, environmental factors, you know factors that play into it, right? That people start to understand why green energy is so efficient. And if I really want to you know, leave the world a better place for my future generation compared to what I received it or all, what are the, all the damages that I have done to it, then I need to go to electric vehicles. So that's a different factor playing in there. The thing is like you can do that with silicon also, but it is a lot more efficient. It's a lot better to do with silicon carbon because the reason I talked earlier is a more efficient semiconductor. The challenge has been with silicon carbide is the cost. To some extent, the reliability, but the reliability happens, you know, reliability, two factors. As we get the cost down, as we manufacture a device more and more in high volume, we run about reliability and we basically, you know, iron out the kings. That's what engineers do day in and day out is that. So, so that those things get solved. One of the key reasons why silicon carbide has suddenly taken off, you know, it, even in last two to three years since we have started is the availability of six inch or 150 millimeter silicon carbide wafers. And you know, that's also, that's the part where I can sort of, you know, probably claim that, hey, that is something that we saw as the monolith founders, we saw that 
that hey that is coming and what is we could predict what is going to happen with silicon carbide and we decided to jump into the market in that at take the risk of leaving our stable jobs and starting monolith was the availability of 150 mm so let me try to explain you why that is the key to success okay. for technology so essentially if you again if you go back to the 80s and how entire semiconductor manufacturing evolved so semiconductor started with making uh, you know the mosfet which is a you know gate of oxide control device surface control device which is which is most commonly used for microprocessors you know every device that you see today mosfets those were known at the beginning but they were very difficult to manufacture that's why initially people were making diodes and bipolar junction transistors bjts which were okay but they were not that good for making complicated devices so what happened was around 80s is when first people you know or engineers we inventors started to making cmos and that is when that is when the real semiconductor revolution took off and at the same time what happened was silicon wafers were going from again went to the same transition from 2 inch to 4 inch to 5 inch to 6 inch what happened is the advent of 6 inch wafers and this semiconductor taking off happened around the same time around 80s all the wafer fabs that were built before less than 6 inch say with 4 inch or 5 inch 5 inch wafers are solid in this transition but mainly definitely for 4 inch wafers were low volume fabs mostly meant for bipolar devices with silicon 6 inches where you see a lot of fabs which are made for cmos or mos mos based devices very you know high volume where the cost comes down so what happened with me semiconductor is that as long as we are at you are at that 3 inch 4 inch wafer size you can run it into in wafers you know they are not cost effective and they really don't have the quality and reliability structure that you need to make a high quality device so silicon carbide as long as they were at that level it didn't really catch on catch on and didn't get the traction as soon as it went to 6 inch now what has happened is if you look at over the world you know most of silicon manufacturing has moved on to 300 mm or 12 inch mm-hmm. but there are also a lot of 8 inch fabs available today and there are still a pl- not a plenty but there are still a decent number of 150 mm 6 inch wafers available and there are a lot of power semiconductors that are still today made on 6 inch wafers so these fabs are perfect because they are they still have like half micronish technology which is sufficient for making a power semiconductor they were built 20 years back so they are totally depreciated so you don't have you know minimal equipment cost and you know they have been perfecting the process so you know that's the only even semiconductor that as long as you run a good fab you keep on running it again and again and again you get an excellent quality system you have a fab which is fully depreciated and if you can use that fab to manufacture your semiconductor that's what you want and that has happened in power semiconductors basically as the semi cmos or microprocessor technology or those advanced technologies moved from 6 inch to 8 inch power semiconductors took the place of the 6 inch uh, silicon has moved a largely advanced technology from 8 inch to 12 inch and lot of the power semiconductors are now starting to move from 6 inch to 8 inch so 6 inch fab was perfect for some silicon carbide because that is that's what gives you the lowest cost of manufacturing but you can make it at a very high volume so when 6 inch silicon carbide wafers became available it was inevitable that this will catch on and the prices will go down and you know you you get the advantages of high volume and all that good stuff 
And that is what I think is the key driver for the success of silicon carbide, the availability of six inch wafer, which has, which has driven everything from there, lower cost, better reliability. And now it is the market is just taking off like crazy. So, so we're going to be able to get the high volume and high yield production of these power devices and therefore they should commercialize a lot quicker, right? Because you're, yeah. you're leveraging the economies of scale and of the, the silicon carbide equipment, right? Exactly. That is, that's exactly what it is. You just took the words from my mouth. Essentially, if you can run it in a six-inch silicon fab, what you can do is that you can use economies of scale and then you have... 10,000, 15,000 silicon silicon wafers running through the line. And, you know, silicon carbide volumes are much lower today. You're probably running, you know, a few hundred wafers a month. You can run the same line, but as long as you can use the same equipment in silicon for most of your processes, you can share the overhead. Compared to if you're trying to build your own fab and run like, you know, those few hundred, even if you're a you know, pretty large company today, of doing purely silicon carbide, you're maybe running a few thousand wafers a month compared to a silicon fab, which is running 20, 25,000 wafers a month easy. Now I understand it. It really isn't so much, there had to be a convergence of a few things. It, it's not really so much the market though. It was just that that move from six to eight inch made made the six inch, the equipment and the the fabs available to produce these silicon silicon carbide power devices in high volume and high yield. So is this sort of a tipping point then? And, and, and mod- yes. Okay. Absolutely. So, so I would add that it's not only silicon moving from six to eight inch, it's also just silicon carbide six inch wafers were not even available. That's still the biggest bottleneck for silicon carbide today is the availability of six inch silicon carbide wafers. That is the biggest bottleneck today is that the companies are trying to, the, the silicon carbide substrate companies are trying to ramp up their manufacturing capacity so that they are not being able, the supply is not being able to catch up with the demand that's available today. So four inch silicon carbide wafers are now supplied by, I think at least five or six silicon carbide wafer suppliers all over the world, but six inch is still supplied by very limited handful of companies. So that transition of silicon carbide wafer availability going from four inch to six inch, that is the tipping point. And now you see everyone jumping into silicon carbide and the demand outstripping the supply drastically. And but but the supply chain will catch up. I'm pretty certain. Over what kind of time frame do you think? I think it will happen probably over the next two two to three years. Uh, but essentially, we're talking about you know entire silicon carbide demand multiplying by 3x, 5x within mm. 12 to 18 months. And it takes some time for the supply to set up their install base and then, you know, ramp up their manufacturing. Maybe answered some of this, but I want to just make sure that I, I cover all the bases here. Um, in silicon carbide wafer production, why does using a, like a one-size-fits-all process sequence make it impossible to optimize a device's performance? So are, are there trade-offs involved? And if so, what are they? So, so essentially, you see that, you know, uh, the, the, one of the challenges which I, I, I didn't fully elaborate was that, so essentially, like, you know, you, you want to run a silicon carbide wafer in a silicon CMOS fab. That was the whole basis of when we started, as I said, like, you know, I, I briefly, you know, mentioned it earlier. I, I think you mentioned it that there were market forces and there was this availability of six-inch wafers that we realized and there was another like, you know, personal touch where essentially two of my classmates from RPI, they also became available at the same time. And when three of us got together, it seemed like, man, this is a perfect opportunity <laughs> to jump into this. That six inch wafers. And we three of us all had like slightly different background. 
I had the ba- I mean, we all had background of silicon carbide in a PhD. You know, that definitely was a common point. But we went in different directions. Where I was more into high volume manufacturing using the fabless model, where you focus on the design and the process, but you use someone else's fab. Someone else runs the fab. You use that as a shared resource to manufacture it. Just exactly for the same reason that you don't have to put a lot of initial investment, and when you are at low volume, you can use the overhead that you have in the fab. But the key is that you should be trying to you utilize the existing processes as much as possible. And then the other two of my colleagues had more background; they were working in silicon carbide uh, research for a long time there. So we came together and we started Monolith. That was a perfect combination. Uh, but so what our plan was that we wanted to find a a standard silicon CMOS fab that has all the characteristics I talked about. That is a high quality automotive fab already running into high volume. Then we had to go and convince them that hey, you have this great fab is running great. But you know what? In even in six inch, you're going to have a trouble at some point five years in the future because most of silicon is moving to eight inch. So you better start to look for something new. And by the way, I have that perfect solution of how your fab is going to run in five years. I can give you that, and that is silicon carbide. But by the way, you need to put invest some money into it. But I, I don't have more than a dollar in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you, how did you make them an offer they couldn't refuse, and you only you didn't have much more than a dollar in your pocket? Exactly. <laughs> so, so basically, that's that's a question of you know how do you sell the dreams? And you talk about selling the dreams of making something new uh, to a VC. This was slightly different. This was more about selling this dream of this new technology. Coming to fab that is going to enable a totally new, you know, range of products and technologies that is going to have, is going to, you know, multiply the fab's options. So what we knew is that hey, you know, because in order to like start a new fab, as I said, most of the processes are same with silicon. You want to utilize as much of the fab process as possible because you don't want to go and invent everything. But the question you asked is that you cannot have one size fits all because at the same time, when I'm going and use someone else's fab, but what I'm telling them that hey, you make a bunch of investment in the fab, but then at the same time, their main thing will be okay, I understand. But you are a small company. I also need to get other people who will use the same equipment of because you have to buy some special equipment for silicon carbide, and they have to make some investment in the fab. To run silicon carbide, so that they can depreciate all that cost on other people's wafers. Also, this is the concept of a shared foundry, where you will have three or four different people using the same fab to manufacture silicon carbide. But then, you know, uh, in commercial world, these three or four people who are making manufacturing silicon carbide, they also need to compete with each other in the marketplace, and they need to make sure they can differentiate in some ways. and that is the reason why one size fits all doesn't really work because for a discrete semiconductor like this it is really difficult to dis- differentiate only based on design and that is one of the things that we had to spend a lot of time with the foundry and make sure they understand that in a, in a standard cmos fold that happens where a foundry can offer a standard basic process and people can come in and just differentiate based on their product design in case of a discrete silicon any power semiconductor you know that never happens and that, that that's well known in in it as documented in the silicon world is that you know there are people who have gone to the fab and typically if you have multiple people you have to make sure that you ha- all have your separate processes 
And that was the main thing with silicon carbide that we did that, hey, we will use the standard processors where we can, but we need to have our special you know, sauce in some of the processes where we need. And, and, and that's the model that we are pursuing right now is that a lot of the processes are standard, but we have our special processes that just belongs to us and we are not sharing them with anyone else. And that's how we think the silicon carbide foundry model is most efficient, that you can use the silicon carbide tools with the, with the other manufacturers to reduce the cost, but you can still differentiate with your own process and design. So you, you integrate the process flows for both silicon and silicon carbide wafers, and then they, you run them in parallel. So therefore, you get significant economies of scale, right? And you can also maintain your differentiation, right? Exactly. Did you have to do a lot of convincing when you met with those fab folks? And, and what was the clincher? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and again, you know, is, is that where I say that, you know, I'm, I'm never a good marketing and sales guy because I'm, I have problems in, uh, you know, going way beyond what I believe. So I, I, I really <laughs> believe in this. And then when, and I, I think that was the clinching point with not only with the fab, also with little fuse that when I talked to the fab, it was interesting. I, I, you know, I, I put together a bunch of presentations and how are we going to ramp up that, you know, in, in five or 10 years, this is going to be, you know, save your fab. This is going to be the main technology in possible in everything. But then I talked about all that. And then I, the CEO of XFAB told me, so basically what I showed is that, Hey, we started in 20, 13 is when I, we talked to so the company. We started Monolith in 2012 and we talked to the fab, started talking to them. We were talking to a bunch of fabs and this is the one that the ex-fab whom we chose was the most positive and they were the most excited. Uh, but the bottom line is that, you know, I told them that, hey, you know, in five years from now, you know, I, I showed them a ramp up where we are going to run like some 300 or 400 wafers per month. Because that's what I believed was true. I think now we are going to be a little bit faster than that. But essentially, the volumes I showed them under normal condition, they wouldn't even look at it because those volumes were so low. But I showed them exactly what I believed in. And I think that was one of the almost, you know, counterintuitive. That was one of the clinching point that because they had talked to a lot of other startups, but the most of the people were showing them, oh, you know, not silicon carbide, but other things that, oh, I'm going to go to thousand wafers, 5,000 wafers a month within two years. So good thing about XFAB and good thing about Little Fuse is that that's why I think it matched very well that both these companies are very used to the industrial world. They're used to the automotive world. So they understand that these technologies take a long time to get the, you know, get the market to really accept them. So it's essentially when I showed them something which is more realistic and matched their expectations, I think they could see the value for silicon carbide and when I talked about the industrial and automotive, uh, these applications and the fact that I didn't really try to oversell and I told them exactly what I believed was true and that matched very well. I think that was one of the key points that matched them. The things that we have talked about so far, looking back five years from now, you know, it seems like it's so obvious. Why won't anyone do it? I mean, I, that was my question to them, that why not? If you think about it, if I lay down, if we can really execute there's absolutely no reason why we won't be successful. Well, of course, five years later, it sounds very easy and simple. And it wasn't so much when we were going through it. And it, it was so obvious. There's no reason why one would do it. Yeah, it does. Because as you're recapping this, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking, of course. And yes, of course, you clinched it. Um, not only for all 
the reasons that you mentioned, but I'm sure, I'm sure your passion and your energy had something to do with it and your belief. Um, and you didn't try to oversell. Could you, would you be willing to share like, you know, in that, in that period of time when, okay, you're looking back now five years later, what would you say were like one or two of maybe the biggest challenges that you have? Was it that conversation or were, were there other issues when you started this company? And then I'm not sure everyone is aware of the association. We talk about Little Fuse and how they have a majority stake in Monolith and and that, what what was that like? And did they come to you? Sure, I can talk whatever, about that. Whatever you can talk about I, with the understanding that there's something. I mean, you know, honestly, if you keep off the records, the toughest part was convincing my wife. <laughs> Do you know, in some of these podcasts, in at least one or two, someone said something very similar. <laughs> hey, I am doing great in my company. Hey, I, uh, you know, we just took that nice vacation. But by the way, I'm going to resign from my job next week. And I know won't get a pay- paycheck starting from next week onwards. And I was living in San Jose at that time. And, you know, we knew that if I do this and depending on how long it takes for us to get funding and money, we may have to, you know, move out of San Jose. And, and that's that's what happened, essentially. Finally, I decided to sell my house there and move over to uh, to Austin. I, I think that was the toughest part, honestly, of convincing my family that, hey, believe me, if I don't do this today, I will regret. That makes total sense, though. That will be the biggest sell is to your family because kind of have, they have the most to lose, right? So, exactly. But- so, so if I'm honest, that was the, that was the toughest part, honestly. But, uh, you know, there's a few other things where, like, you know, some of the learnings I had, and, and that's what I say, it's, it's not about so much about things that happened. It's so much more about the parts where we I, I failed. And what I couldn't do is I couldn't convince a single person, uh, you know, a single VC or uh, angel investor to put money in the company. So I think, I, I think that was the toughest part and the realization that I had. Which, as you said, despite is, yeah, I mean, I'm passionate. I like, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing today. No regrets about that. But I, I went and talked to a bunch of VCs. I, I thought that, hey, I'm in Bay Area. You know, this is the place for all the VCs. And what I realized is that, you know, that's a very different world compared to what we do. So our goal from day one, we knew what we are doing is we're not building a Facebook. We are not building a you know, even uh, we are not even building a Tesla. What we are building is we knew exactly what path we wanted to follow. And we knew that, hey, we are a technology team, all three of us who started. And we had a fourth founder also who invested, but you know, he had his own startup doing silicon carbide materials. So he didn't join us. He was continue, still running his company. So three of us who left our jobs and started this, we knew that we are, our strength is in engineering. Our strength is in building this and producing this technology, we were not the people who would, you know, take a whole bunch of money and do marketing and sales. And, you know, I mean, we, we can do that if that wants, but there are a lot of other companies and other people who are better at doing this than what we are. So we were not in it so much for, okay, let's take a whole bunch of money and let's build a, another totally new infrastructure and for marketing and sales and go and try to sell this product over like 10, 15 years and go IPO. So that was like, you know, that was never in our vision. So our vision was, I I think that was the biggest advantage we had from day one. We had outlined exactly what we wanted to do and how we wanted to get here. So when I started talking with VCs or investors, our, my pitch was very simple. 
I want small amount of money, not a whole lot, which we need to build this company, build this product. But then we wanted to go and talk to an established company who already has the marketing, already has the sales, who are interested in this product. And then we want to leverage their existing infrastructure to sell this product. And unfortunately, well, you know, that just didn't match with the standard investing model that's out there today. And, you know, that was a, that was a big learning from for me. I never really studied the VC or investing world that well as an engineer. So what really worked out for us on the other hand is it worked out very well with strategics and particularly with, as has happened with Dilufuse. So when we presented to them, you know, some common, we had some common friends and they were also, Littlefuse was also looking into, you know, investing into this technology because they had outlined their strategic plan where they wanted to get into power semiconductors and clearly into silicon carbide. And they were trying to understand how to get into this. So when we talked to them, the same thing worked is that <laughs> to almost every company I have talked to or VCs, they wanted to see us putting more money in the company, doing investing even more, spending more and trying to accelerate as much as possible. <laughs> Little Fuse was the opposite. Little Fuse was, hey, these things take time. We do industrial, we do automotive, we understand how long it takes. So don't try to tell me something that is not real. Tell me really how long it's going to take. Tell me really how long you know it's going to, to get to market and what is the ramp up cycle. And that's what I think, you know, our... Our uh, vision, our thoughts matched very well together between Monolith and Little Fuse. We were not in it for going a huge ramp up and where we can get into trouble. We wanted to do it in a controlled way. We go into market, we release our products. We, we know that this is a huge potential over five years, 10 years in both industrial and automotive. But we are going to take our time. So how, how would you say that's going? Is it continuing along the path you expected based upon the initial conversations and agreement? I think I think it is going, you know, way more than what I expected. Oh, okay. <laughs> particularly, uh, so actually the, uh, our engagement with Little Fuse has been now, it's almost getting close to, I think close to three years now. Oh, so. Okay. And then when we should demonstrate to them that we can really make it, that's when they took, uh, and that's why I'm saying, right? I mean, for a lot of other companies, they will, they can try to accelerate it and then do it as soon as possible. But Littlefields didn't do that. They did it in a slow manner that, okay, first show me that you can really do it. Then they took majority ownership. And now we are together going to the market. But what has happened is so with Littlefields, right? Littlefields' strength has always been in the marketing side, in the operation side, where they are a global company. And you know, I almost have this uh, image of Little Fuse. Uh, well, and some marketing people may or may not like it. I have this image of Little Fuse as a big mama bear. <laughs> 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 although, although the marketing theme of Little Fuse has been now uh, a cheetah, is where we are agile, we are fast. That's what we are doing right now. But usually, like you know, what I see the strength of Little Fuse, honestly, is the stability. With the customers, just love Little Fuse because of their customer service, because of their operational strength, that they deliver what they say. We are trying to do something new. We are trying to you know, innovate. We are trying to do stuff. But at the same time, we needed that stable you know, guidance who can take us to the market, who can take us to the, you know, to the world to, the, to openly and help us set up the whole manufacturing chain and also help us set up the going to the marketing and the go-to-market strategy. But still, there was one piece that was missing, 
at that point, drill fuel still really was not well known as a power semiconductor supplier. And all that changed last year when Little Fuse announced that they are acquiring ICES. In you know they announced the that intention to acquire in I, I think you know July or August of last year 2017, and the deal closed in January 2018. So now with ICES, Little Fuse, and Monolith together, I think we bring the dye technology, silicon carbide technology, into the game. Little Fuse has all the strengths I talked about, and now ICES brings a brand recognition for power semiconductors and they also bring a plethora of technology packaging silicon you know gate driver all sorts of things so we have this nice uh, i like to call it the the lego building block where we have built this world of that okay we can do everything in power semiconductors that a typical big power company has and now we truly do have all those technologies that are needed and now it's all about execution, how we bring all this together, where we can really add a lot of value for customers by bringing all these things together. So it has gone way beyond what my imagination was. And that's why I say that I was hoping that, well, you know, after a few years, we can slow down. I just don't see when I'm getting a chance to slow down right now. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> think so. And that, that brings me to, um, you know, before we sign off here, a couple of things first is... Um, yeah, I don't think you're going to slow down, especially if silicon, as silicon carbide hits the, you know, the the renewable energy market as as it looks like it, it's going to make an impact in as much as it is. I can kind of think about other applications, but what other applications do you think would be next for silicon carbide? And and given that you've got this this trifecta with Little Fuse and Ixis, and Little Fuse being obviously so well known in the automotive as well and industrial, where do you think silicon carbide might end up? What application might it end up in next? I think you know where we started from was you know we started talking about the green energy, the solar inverter. Clearly, that has been the number one driver for silicon carbide over the last couple of years. Because as you know, solar inverter has grown, there's a big hunger for improving the efficiency and also making it smaller and more cost effective, basically increasing the frequency, getting you know, reducing the passives and the heat sink and all the good stuff that silicon carbide brings. So making the solar inverter more efficient, smaller and more cost, less expensive. And silicon carbide is right in the forefront driving all that. That's the initial application. And as you think of efficiency, the next thing that comes into your mind, clearly the big hungry data centers, right? You can see that, you know, all this, you know, all our data being on cloud and everywhere there, we can't do anything without just looking at what tweet happened today morning. All that is in some data center somewhere. So essentially, there's a huge demand for power supplies and the efficiency for that. So all sorts of power supplies, including data center UPS, they are also starting to, you know, adapt more and more of silicon carbide. Now, these applications are very much different, uh, you know, defined or, you know, driven by efficiency. What is going to happen beyond that? So while silicon carbide starts to penetrate these applications, what is happening is the cost is coming down. So the next thing which is really driving silicon carbide is the electric vehicle revolution that we also already talked about. Thing with electric vehicle is that the volumes are still low, but the thing is there's a huge amount of work going on on building the infrastructure of the ch of the chargers all over because unless you build the infrastructure you cannot really have the the multiplication or the huge ramp up of electric vehicles and on the onboard charger 
there for that you think about it the weight and the efficiency is absolutely key because you want it to charge your battery as soon as possible so both for the onboard and the offboard charger silicon carbide is a perfect fit so after the pv and the power supplies the chargers are the next application and going beyond that like going to 3 to 5 years the next big applications as the cost come down and that's why like you know everyone is sort of kind of looking at it starry eyed when that is going to happen is when silicon carbide is going to penetrate the the core traction inverter in the electric vehicle because that is the thing that really takes the energy from the battery mm-hmm. and drives your motor and if you can increase the efficiency if you can make it smaller and lighter that silicon carbide does then essentially you can get the more mileage out of the same battery you know which is absolutely critical so that is what with the is the holy grail that everyone is driving towards the traction inverter that sounds like a pretty positive roadmap for silicon carbide um no pun intended but it does want to just wrap up a little bit here um sujit i normally ask whoever i'm interviewing like what advice they would give but the thing is i don't know whether you know it to, to another to an entrepreneur somebody want to start uh, an engineer wanting to start their own business in my mind you've already answered it <laughs> but you tell me and and I mean, also something else and I'm uh, talking to other um engineer entrepreneurs is boy no one's afraid to admit that they made mistakes and it was a good thing they did and i think the perception sometimes is oh this this person started their company what a huge success they must have had all these successes along the way and what is more true i think is um there's a lot of failures along the way which led to the eventual success so so you know i, I mean the, the number one thing i would say is follow your dreams i mean follow your dreams and trust your instinct that if you think something if you believe in something trust yourself and the second thing that as you mentioned is you know failures will happen and those are the days when failure does happen is the most important thing to trust yourself and don't forget why you started this whole thing that you still believe in it the other thing that i would say which is absolutely critical is build a team that you can trust and make sure that this team and I, i think that is a large part of the success that we had that the team we had between you know our founders we are exclusive very day one when you start it make sure you know exactly what your goals are and what what you're trying to do don't start thinking that hey i'm starting this what we are doing and i'm going to be build a facebook or google and i'm going to have a huge something big ipo something like that if you start from there it's very difficult to meet that expectation so basically you should know what you want to do finally and make sure you are aligned with your partners with whom you are starting there and sometimes not only with the immediate partners also with other people who are working for you there make sure you are all aligned uh, what the final motivation is what you want to do but at the same time make sure you enjoy the journey as you said that hey there's very good chance that you would will fail and we got lucky i think you know yeah i i might say all that hey all that stuff we did all the good stuff but we got lucky in a lot of ways if you don't enjoy the journey take it as if hey i am really learning something out of it and you will come out of the end of it as a better person that's not just great advice for starting a business it's just pretty much great advice for living your life isn't it <laughs> so well, as long as i can teach my my kids that i will be happy so <laughs> 
Well, they're very fortunate um, to have you as their teacher, Sujit. So I want to thank you very much. It was a pleasure um, once again speaking with you, this time recording. And uh, good luck, continued good luck. Yeah, I I look forward to hearing more about you. Thanks, Amy. (laughs) Thank you for joining me and Monolith Semiconductor CEO, Sujit Banerjee who brought human intelligence to the convergence of wideband gap semiconductor technology and market forces to make his impact on energy efficiency and make that Little Fuse green logo a little greener. I'm Amy Kalnoskis, and you've been listening to EE Entrepreneurs from EE World Online and WTWH Media. Join me as we uncover the human stories behind the engineering successes that make a difference.